0: This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is April 4th, 2013. That's April 9th. I'm your host, Jim Pullen. Welcome to a special conference on World Affairs show with guest Dr. Seth Shostak, the senior astronomer with the SETI Institute. That's the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. We're gonna be talking to Seth about what the search for ET means about us. Stay tuned. <clears throat> Welcome to How on Earth, Dr. Shostak. How are you
1: today? Yeah, uh, Just fine, although uh, I'm surprised by the snow. I thought it was going to be 90 degrees today.
0: Yeah, it's not bikini weather yet here. <laughs> it's getting there, though. It was in the 70s the other day. Well, thanks for joining us. And, uh, Seth, can you give us a quick primer on where SETI is at now, uh, you know, how's the supply side of the equation doing these days, Drake's uh, Drake's equation?
1: Right. Well, uh, Drake's equation, that, that that's an equation that was cooked up uh, in 1961. So it's more than a half century ago, uh, designed to sort of give us some idea of what the chances are that we might trip across E.T. by tuning into their radio programs, as it were, doing what Jodie Foster did in the movie Contact. We're continuing to do that. What I think the public doesn't generally know and what is important in this field is that although we haven't found a signal yet... Uh, the equipment, the technology that's being used to do the search keeps getting better, and it gets better very very quickly because it depends a lot on computers, and computers keep getting faster. So uh, we're looking at uh, a lot of star systems that are known to have planets these days. Uh, I, I figure if we can keep finding the money, we'll look at a million star systems in the next two dozen years, and that may be good enough to find find the Klingons, as it were
0: yeah of course but then we'll have to have the universal translator i guess but so you know when i went over to jpl's planet quest they keep a count of how many candidates and confirms there are and so forth it said there were two thousand eight hundred and I'm sorry, 2,781 candidates and 841 confirms, uh, 300 or 3,622 exoplanets, and so Kepler has made a huge difference, right, in finding planets. Um,
1: That's true. Uh, Kepler, of course, is it wasn't really sent out there just to find planets because you know we we found. Just from the ground, on the order of 850 planets. I don't, The tally changes almost hourly, so I don't know the exact number. But in terms of Kepler, Kepler's job is to find out what fraction of planets are sort of like the Earth, you know, with uh, you know, maybe liquid oceans, a nice atmosphere, the kind of salubrious conditions you have here in Boulder. That's what Kepler is designed to do. Now, so far, it hasn't found a whole lot of Earth analogs, cousins of the Earth, but I think that's coming up fairly soon. But it has found, as you just said, you know, close to 3,000 planetary candidates. Not all of them will turn out to be planets. It's hard to, you know, check them out, but the majority will be. The majority will be.
0: Yeah, and so I guess a few days ago, they found their smallest planet, which is smaller than Mercury. Now, that's quite a feat that was at 210 light years. It's a small little planet. Yeah,
1: Kepler's able to find things. You know, maybe, I don't know if it could find the moon, for example. That might be a little bit too small, but it gets very close. And it finds them in a very simple way. Kepler, you know, any any fourth grader can understand how Kepler works. It just looks for the slight dimming of starlight when a planet passes in front of it. it's, you know, essentially looking for what are called transits. Many people know them as eclipses. Yeah. Right.
0: But of course, there is that kind of blinding light from the star and the kind of inherent twinkling of the star. Now, Kepler is out in outer space, so we don't get the atmospheric twinkling, but there's still some, this, the inherent noise in the star uh kind of uh, makes it a little bit tough.
1: It does. Uh, stars, uh, you know, they put out uh, more or less the same amount of light all the time, but it's only more or less, as you say. And it varies by, you know, maybe one part in a thousand, one part in 10,000, but Kepler can measure these variations. So it does see, you know, uh, yes, it, the, the data are noisy, and that, that ultimately limits what they can find. Yeah, no, these are
0: just engineering problems. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's just, <laughs>
1: it's just an engineering pro- It's It's in some sense an astronomical problem, too.
0: Well, you know, so th- how about the Cinderella planets? They, uh, these are the Earth-like planets. How, how are we doing with those? Well, what they found, what Kepler's found,
1: and, and this is somewhat interesting for people who've been paying attention to the discovery of planets, which, you know, really began in 1995. Uh, and at the beginning, the planets that people were finding were really big, heavy-duty, hunky planets that were like the size of Jupiter and bigger that were very, very close to their stars, and nobody really expected to find that, but that's what we were finding. They were called hot Jupiters because they're so close to their stars, they're going to be really toasty. Obviously, ET's not going to hang out on a planet like that, so it was a little discouraging. Is this what planets usually look like, you know, these big things very close to their, their host suns? But Nowadays, with better instruments, and Kepler in particular, what they find is most of the planets they find, the majority of the planets they find, are kind of like uh, something between the size of the Earth and the size of Neptune. Okay? Now, th- they're called super-Earths because they're bigger than the Earth. What's interesting is that our own solar system doesn't have any planets like that. So, you know, our own solar system might be a little bit uh, special in some way.
0: Right. But and then uh, these these planets of uh, you say that you told me before the show that we're finding planets of one to four Earth masses. Are these planets in the sweet spot?
1: Yeah. Well, uh, some of them are the sweet spot. (laughs) The sweet spot. If you're a planet, the sweet spot is to be just at the right distance from your home star so that, you know, you could have liquid water on the surface. In other words, it's not so far out that it's, you know, permanently frozen and not so close in that it's permanently steam, okay? So that's, that's called the Goldilocks zone for obvious reasons. Uh, and there are a few that are sort of in the Goldilocks zone. We, we have not found, as to say, cousins of Earth. But keep in mind the way this experiment works, the only way you can really find a planet is if you see a little dip in the brightness of the star three times, Okay. Uh, Fewer than that, you don't know whether you really found a planet or whether you just found a whole bunch of sunspots that you can't see on that star. So three times, if you're trying to find the Earth, you know, the Earth takes 365 days to go around the sun. There are a lot of people who know that. (laughs) Okay. And so that means you need three times 365 days in order to find it. In other words, you need at least three years' worth of data. And you know, Kepler is just getting to the point where it has three years' worth of data. So the fact that we haven't found any cousins of Earth doesn't mean they're not very, very common. It only means that because of this limitation in the observations, we haven't found them yet. But I'll bet everybody here a cup of coffee, we're going to find lots of uh, Earth analogs in the next two years. Of
0: course, these giant Jupiter-sized and bigger planets that are really, really close to their star, they're zipping around all the time. We get to count them up a lot. Yeah, there, there, are,
1: there are super Jupiters, there are hot Jupiters, there are big planets. There are all sorts of odd planets. I mean, our, our solar system, you think, has odd planets when you see pictures of them in a book and so forth. But compared to some of these other solar systems, we're, you know, really very, uh, I don't know, we, we call it normal. The, the question is whether it's really normal, but in any case, it's very
0: placid compared to a lot of these systems. Right. So, you know, when we continue to look at the supply side of the equation, uh, there are no kind of surprises here. I mean, when we look at our own solar system, we see that we have a lot of planets, uh, maybe one fewer than we had before, but we do have a lot of planets. Then it gets a little trickier moving through Drake's equation, right? It gets a little trickier in terms of, let's say, how many planets have life on them. That's uh, that's kind of, we've only got one example, right? That we. That's know.
1: right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, those are the big questions. The Drake equation tries to estimate how many uh, societies out there in our galaxy, in the Milky Way, are broadcasting signals that are going right through our bodies as we sit here, right, that we might be able to pick up. And obviously that depends on how many stars there are. We know that. But it also depends on what fraction of those stars have planets. Well, we kind of know that now. But it also depends on what fraction of those plants ever cook up life. And we don't know that. Obviously, it happened here. We wouldn't be having the discussion now. But on the other hand, here's the big question. If I give you a million worlds that are sort of like the Earth, you know, they got liquid water on them and whatever, uh, what fraction of them would not only just incubate life, produce life, but how many of them would, uh, uh, you know, ultimately, eventually produce intelligent life? And intelligence means you can build a radio transmitter. So the people here at KGNU are clearly intelligent, but, you know, so... So, so who knows? So we, we don't know the answer to that. In, in some sense, some of that is, I mean, a lot of it is evolution and biology and things like that. Uh, some of it has to do with, uh, you know, does nature inevitably always cook up an intelligent species? And, you know, there's been three and a half, four billion years of life on this planet. And only in the last 200,000 years have we had an intelligent species able to build a radio transmitter.
0: Well, there was a new paper and uh, from the University of Washington that just occurred to me. Uh, these folks, uh, these physicists, said that they could determine whether or not we're living inside a simulation. And there's that sort of argument about <laughs> there's that there's that sort of argument about uh, you know what has been going on in the past four billion years. Why has life taken so long to arise on the Earth? So. Uh, Many other kinds of questions that Yeah,
1: no, that is an interesting question. There's this guy at Oxford University in the UK, Nick Bostrom, who thinks that there's a 20% chance that... Everything that we think is real here today is all somebody's computer simulation. It's not real. I asked him actually. I said, "Does this mean I have to live a moral existence, or can I just have fun?" And he thought about that for a while. And he said, "Well, you probably ought to live a moral existence, but maybe his wife was was listening. I don't know." He took Descartes' way out.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, now you uh, you started off using radio telescopes to look at galaxies. I think it was probably your earliest work and your postdoc work, and then and then you uh, you went to uh, SETI, the SETI Institute. And maybe it wasn't called the SETI Institute in those days. Maybe it hadn't quite spawned off as a not-for-profit. But, you know, uh, how has, personally for you, how has the search for ek- extraterrestrial intelligence, what the significance to you? How's that changed over the years?
1: Well, I don't know that the significance has actually changed much. I mean, people say, why, why do you do this? Uh, you know, you're looking for ET, you haven't found it. And it's been more than 50 years since the first such experiment was done. You still haven't found anything. And, you know, exploration is a great thing, and I like to read books about the great explorers looking for Antarctica or the South Pacific, whatever. None of them spent 50 years without finding anything, right? So even my mom will occasionally say, Seth, when are you going to get a real job? Uh, my response to that is, Mom, I don't want a real job. But in any case, in any case. But I tell you, it, it actually is very interesting. It's very interesting because obviously it's, a, you know, it's an important question. Are, are we some sort of miracle here? Or is this, you know, the the development of not just life, but even intelligent life? Is that something that's, you know, as common as cheap motels? It's all over the place, right? And we don't know the answer to that. And it would be very interesting just to know that answer, let alone any communication. Just to know that would be interesting. So on the one hand, I enjoy working on a project that is really a big picture question. I mean, I could be, you know, repairing transmissions down at the local garage, and that's a good living too. But on the other hand, this is something that has sort of a profound significance. The other thing is that we've learned a lot of stuff. We've been talking about planets around other stars, Uh, the the improvement in the technology of SETI. I mean, things change. And they've all changed in one direction, uh, in that direction being that it looks like we're probably not as special as we like to think.
0: Well you know uh setting aside uh, questions about you know whether we're actually living in a simulation of what we can and can't know uh, uh i'd like to imagine two paths here you know in the one uh, on the one hand, we do find extraterrestrial intelligent life it's it's a done deal it's confirmed you've gone through your checklist, your processes the military has tried to grab it you've held it back you've got it out to the <laughs> public by careening down the side of the mountain and your in your pickup truck without having a crash. <laughs> Some movie I'm remembering, no doubt. Yeah. But, so it's, it's a done deal, but that's all we know. They, it's kind of an existence thing. Let's start with that. They exist, and we know where they are, and that's all the signal. Well, is that, is that the minimum signal that we'll get, or can, well, will we expect uh-huh. to get better than that?
1: Yeah, no, that, that, that's a good point. I mean, suppose, you know, next week we pick up a signal. I mean, what are we going to know? What are we going to know? We're going to say, well, there's a signal, and, of course, you check it out. It would take you maybe a week to be sure, where you would call a press conference, although I have to tell you on the basis of false alarms, and we get false alarms all the time, you know, there, there's no matter, there, there's no issue of calling a press conference. The media immediately know that you've picked up a signal and they start calling you up. So, well, do you
0: have anything to reveal to us now, just in case? Yeah. <laughs> I wish I did. Oh, <laughs> okay. I wish I did. But no, uh, what you would do is every, you can
1: be sure this, Jim, every telescope in the world would be aimed at whatever spot it was on the sky where the signal is coming from. So they, they, you know, you're trying to find out, can you see any planets there? You know, how far away that star system, whatever it is. Okay, so you would learn a few astronomical things right away. You uh, you know, maybe you could see the planet, that would be good. So then you would learn from that, if you get a little bit of light off the planet, you know, how fast it rotates, so you know, you know, how long ET's day was, the year you would know, you'd know something about the average temperatures from, you know, these are all just astronomy things. But meanwhile, you're getting the signal in. And of course, everybody's going to be asking, well, What are they saying? What are they saying? And the answer to that is, you don't know the answer to that because the the kind of receivers we use don't really allow you to pick up the message, the bits. But of course, at that point, money, which is the big impediment to this whole thing, would no longer be an impediment and you'd have lots of money and you could build very, very big antennas and maybe you could get the bits. And after that, Well, I don't know. I think you'd put them all on the internet and have everybody download them onto their hard drive, and it would just be like trying to understand the hieroglyphics. Everybody would get into the act and see if they could figure it
0: out. Right. Well, let's imagine that we did get to that point, and everybody has tried to figure it out, and all we get is deet, deet, deet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it isn't a pulsar, and it isn't a, a, you know, it isn't a naturally occurring source. What does humanity do with this? You know, now I mean, because right polls have shown that already, most people believe that uh, ET exists and probably is down here on Earth. And we, I don't really want to get into that, but if you'd like to,
1: yeah, no, but, well, but
0: isn't it true that that most people are believers? Already.
1: Yes. No, that's right. Polls taken since the 1960s, at least, show that the majority of the public believes that the aliens are there somewhere. Uh, I mean, they've seen a lot of television shows and movies, and that probably helps. But the but the other thing is, yes, you're right. One third of them believe that the aliens are not only out there, but they're here, you know, hauling people out of their homes in Loveland or whatever, for whatever experiments their moms wouldn't approve of. There's that. But in, in, you know, I, don't, I don't think that's true, by the way, as an aside, but we... You know, we're not talking about that today, but uh, believing that they're there, yes. So how would that change things? Would people say... As you even intimated here, that if, if we were to pick up a signal that the, the feds would sweep down into our offices and say, we're shutting you guys down because the public couldn't handle the news. What are you talking about? The public already believes it's true that a third of them think they're here. So it isn't that they couldn't handle the news. It isn't that they wake up in the morning. They found a signal from E.T. from a thousand light years away. I'm not going to work today. I'm going to riot in the streets. No, not going to happen. They they they're already they're all hap- They're all down with that. I think that what would happen is that they would find it very interesting and they'd want to know more. And that's, that's where, you know, there would be a lot of research to try and learn more. And maybe we could learn it and maybe we couldn't. And maybe we would never understand a single thing they're saying to us.
0: But at least you know you're not the only kid on the block. Well, it kind of leads me to the next thing. I. Uh, You know, so we've we've talked a little bit about what happens if we get this minimalist signal. It's not going to startle people uh, into rioting. And I actually could live in Southern California instead of some small (laughs) backwater town in Montana. But, uh, you know, then there's the other alternative, which is kind of even a more, uh, maybe a more horrific alternative, which happened in the movie Contact. They get plans. uh, They come to believe that they've got the key to the universe, that all this knowledge is being dumped down on them. Jodie Foster gets in the spaceship, people die, trillions are spent, and she's plummeted to the ocean and has a religious experience. Um, is that a plausibility?
1: Well, I mean, I don't know. Actually, there's been very little research into this. I mean, people ask all the time, if we found out we weren't the only intelligent beings, and of course, any signal you hear is probably coming from a more advanced society. They might be 100 million years more advanced than we are. right? So not only are you not only the not the only kid on the block but you're you're not you know you're the youngest kid on the block right? There there's all these other kids who know a lot more than you do and and that's what you find out and so how would that affect our religion and people theologians have been asked this actually and the, you know for the leading religions islam judaism christianity they've all been asked and and they all say oh no no problem we can handle that I mean, even the Catholic Church, which in the past has not always accepted discoveries in astronomy, as you know, but they, they do now, and they even have conferences on this whole subject. So, you know, uh, strictly speaking, there's, there's no problem there. However, as was pointed out to me by uh, a sociologist by the name of uh, Bill Bainbridge, he, he said that, you know, the, the, the problem is that when people want to know what the reaction to religion is going to be, they asked the mainstream theologians, they asked people at the Harvard Divinity School or whatever, and he says the real action is with the fundamentalists, and they might have a problem because this is not in the Bible. So it's, it's, it's simply unknown. Uh, but I, I will say this. We've gone through this exercise 100 years ago when people were talking about the canals on Mars. The public believed that. The public believed there was this vast hydraulic civilization, 35 million miles from Pearl Street Mall, and uh, they weren't rioting in the streets. Well, although there was that
0: War of the Worlds thing. But that yeah. was a more of a that was a real and present danger. <laughs> yes,
1: yes. And that, that and, and also it was thirty, forty years later. So
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, now when when we look at the polls, uh, are, do you, are you aware of any distinctions in the polls by uh, income, religion, or, or any other sort of thing about how much people believe uh, that extraterrestrial or intelligent life exists in the cosmos? Well, not in terms of whether they
1: think they're out there. In terms of because uh, the questions have all been formulated, you know, do you think that aliens are visiting the Earth and that the the government is keeping that secret from you and that sort of thing. And as I say, that's one-third of the population. And by the way, that's not just this country. That's also true in Europe. It's true in Australia and so forth. Uh, and so they do have some demographic information there. And it turns out that college-educated people are a little more likely to believe that. That, that, that may
0: surprise you, but that's... And women are slightly more likely to believe it than men. Well, I, guess not, I guess I'm not too surprised because this is a serious scientific endeavor and a serious, uh, this is a serious field of study, Right. Well, yeah, well, very serious. Well, life in
1: space is a very serious uh, field of study. Actually, I mean, look, look. You know, everybody got all excited last fall when the Curiosity lander, you know, plopped down onto the rusty, dusty surface of Mars, right? And what's the what's the job of that little guy? Anyhow, he's not so little. <laughs> he's a pretty big rover. But it's you know to look for the the ingredients of of life. Actually, we're interested in Mars. Yeah, there are people interested in the hydrological history of Mars, you know, where there's running water here, there. But they're interested in that primarily because there might be life on Mars. And it would be bacterial life. You need a microscope to see it. But it would tell you, if you found that, dead or alive,
0: it would tell you, you know, life can cook up just about anywhere. That's what it would tell you. And that would be very interesting. Right, and that feeds back into Drake's equation. That closes one of the big uncertainties. And so there are other ways to skin this cat, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. If if you found other evidence of life in our own solar system, even if, as they say, it was no bigger than a bacterium,
0: that would tell you something really important, that biology will, will happen. Yeah. Well, let's imagine, the. so we've, we've looked at the scenarios now where people find uh you know, we find the signal, you find the signal, your folks find the signal, everybody tunes in. I'm listening. I'm just like glued to my headphones. I can't get away from it for about until I need to go to the fridge anyway. Now let's imagine the situation that we never, and I mean, never find a signal. What, what happens then? Has has anybody ever been asked, you know, what, what's going to happen to all this belief? and then we never find it. A hundred years goes by.
1: Yeah, well, I'll I tell you, that would be a little discouraging. Uh, <laughs> that would be disappointing. But on the other hand, it doesn't prove anything. Unfortunately... You know, SETI, we call it a science, and it is a science. It's you know follows the tenets of science in general. But it's 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 database and so forth. But on the other hand, uh, a lot it's discovery science. It's exploration. Maybe that's a simple word to use here, and that means it's not falsifiable. The hypothesis is not falsifiable. Uh, you know, if you predict that the Higgs boson is going to have a you know exist and have a certain energy, and then you go with a big machine like the Large Hadron Collider or whatever, and you don't find it. Okay, you falsified that idea. You, you can say, you know, your theory's wrong. You can just say it. It, it doesn't exist as you've predicted it. A lot of science, it works that way. You have a hypothesis and you try and falsify it. But in the case of looking for ET, you have this hypothesis that they're out there. But if you don't find them, it doesn't mean that they're not out there, unfortunately. You can't prove that they're not there. So I think that that affects the, the reaction to that. All you can do is prove that they are there. And there's some hope of that. And that's why we do it. But, but you know, if we didn't find ET by 2050, I bet a lot of people cups of coffee that will find ET by 2025, actually. But if we don't, you know, what does that mean? What if by 2050, we still haven't found them? What does that mean? It doesn't mean too much. It, to me, it would mean we're not doing the right experiment. I don't think I would ever come to believe that they're not out there. That, that would make us so special. Right.
0: Well, I, I think it would be very saddening for most people to, to really have to come to grips. We're alone. This is it. We're alone. We're alone. Yeah, well, that's true. Of course, you won't,
1: won't have proved that. All you've proved is that you can't find them, or at least not yet. Yeah. yeah. I mean, think of, you know, if you were trilobites sitting around 400 million years ago thinking, let's see if we can find other trilobites on other worlds, you know. You might not be able to find them, but it doesn't mean they're not there. It just means you weren't able to find them.
0: We started this conversation off talking about the supply side and Drake's equation deals with that. How many of, uh, how many of these uh, civilizations exist and are ready to be detected. But now there's the kind of the detection side. I don't think that's in Drake's equation, right? But a lot, as you said, computers are getting better. There's the new Allen array. Tell us a little bit about how you're gearing up and when, you know, when we'll have a good coverage of the sky and be able to have a really good look at a lot of places and, and uh, tell us about that whole endeavor.
1: It's actually not uh, terribly difficult to do all this. We have well in hand all the technology regard. What we don't have is the is the money. Uh, the Allen Telescope Array, which is in Northern California, 42 antennas spread across uh, some lava fields there. We're looking at uh, as much of the sky as we can. If we had a bit more money, we would look at a lot more sky and over a lot wider range of the radio dial, so to speak. So, look, I'm optimistic. I think we can do it. But if you don't have the money, it's it's very difficult. Well, where should people be sending their money? Well, I mean, <laughs> obviously...
0: <laughs> Our listener member support to get you going.
1: Yes, yes, indeed. Well, just go to SETI.org, SETI.org, and you'll find the SETI Institute. And that's, you know, obviously someplace I would be pleased to see people help with.
0: Yeah, and there are some citizen science efforts. Are those worth participating in?
1: They are, sure. I mean, there's SETI at home. That's been going for like 10 years. That came out of Seattle originally, actually. And then there, uh, there are things like uh, SETI Live and SETI Quest, and you already talked about Planet Quest, people can
0: look for planets. So there's a lot of citizen science, too. Well, thank you very much, Seth Shostak, Senior Astronomer at the SETI Institute. We're happy to have you here today. My pleasure, Jim. And you've been listening to How on Earth? and with our special guest, guest, Seth Shostak, Senior Astronomer with the SETI Institute in California. And this is part of the Conference on World Affairs at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Thanks for joining us today on How on Earth, and stay tuned now for Alan Watts.